A world of rugged landmasses and slender seas, slate-gray Ariadu had long sought to be the coruscant of the outer rim. That goal had been furthered by dint of Ariadu's choice location in the heart of the Sesuena sector, at the intersection of the Rima trade route and the Hydean Way. But where Coruscant had confined most of its factories and foundries to specific areas, industry held sway over all Ariadu, fouling air, land, and sea with unrelenting outpourings of toxic byproducts. The planet's principal city was in the southern hemisphere, a thriving seaport that had grown up around the mouth of a major river. From the rear of the energy-shielded repulsor-lift limousine that had swept him past crowds of demonstrators at Ariadu Spaceport, Valorum surmised that the city must have been a scenic wonder, once upon a time. To the protective force of judicials, senate guards, and security droids, he was known in code as the Goods. After the decision to send half the supplemental force of Jedi Knights to Asmaru to deal with the crisis there, the security detail chiefs had demanded that Valorum submit to wearing a temporary locator implant so that they would know where he was at all times. It was ironic that he should find himself in the spotlight when the whole idea behind the trade summit had been to focus attention on the Outer Rim worlds. Still, he was glad that he had had sense enough to listen to Senator Palpatine about going through what the summit has planned, despite what was occurring in the Senex sector. An added irony was that the Valorum family had played a part fouling Ariadu's atmosphere, courtesy of the enormous balls of flame that spewed periodically from the factory stacks that dominated the outskirts of the city. The family's contribution was a space vessel construction and shipping concern, based in orbit and in several downside facilities. Valorum's unworld relatives had offered their stately homes and mansions for use during his visit, but once again he had followed a suggestion by Senator Palpatine that he stay at the home of the sector's lieutenant governor, who was an acquaintance of Palpatine. The lieutenant governor's name was Wilhuff Tarkin, and his compound was said to overlook the artificially blue waters of the bay. Tarkin was rumored to be an ambitious man, with grandiose ideas, and in that his manse by the sea did not disappoint. Valorum was ushered into the manse by a surround of Senate guards. Also under escort walked Say Terrier and a dozen members of the Coruscant delegation to the summit. Trailing them came Adigalia and three other Jedi, who had assented to Valorum's request that they be as unobtrusive as possible. Valorum had expected to be fated, but he had not been prepared for so sizable a gathering. With Say Terrier at his side, he was announced to a ballroom filled with dignitaries representing worlds throughout the mid and outer rims. Few there were enamored with Valorum, but all of them were eager to be heard on the matter of taxation of the free trade zones. Supreme Chancellor Valorum, the man who had made it all happen, said, Ariadu is honored to receive you. Lieutenant Governor Tarkin was a wiry man with intense blue eyes, sunken cheeks, and an expressionless mouth. His brow was high and bony, and his taut face seemed to reveal the size and shape of every bone beneath. Already receding at the temples, his black hair was combed straight back and meticulously cut. He stood tall and straight as a military officer and projected an air of aristocratic officiousness. Valorum recalled hearing that Tarkin, in fact, had served in the military when Ariadu was part of what had then been known as the Outland Regions. Did Senator Palpatine arrive with you? Tarkin asked. He had some lingering business to attend to on Coruscant, Valorum replied. But I'm certain that the Naboo delegation will arrive in time for the summit's opening remarks. 
Parkin appraised Valorum openly as they stepped down into the ballroom, the crowd parting before them. It's a rare occasion when anyone involved in republic politics leaves Coruscant, Tarkin continued. Something of a prison, isn't it? Should duty ever call for me to be confined to one place, I will at least demand that I have ample space around me. He waved his thin arms through a broad circle. Valorum forced a smile. The trip was short and pleasant. Yes, but for you to leave the Corps and to come here, it's nothing less than extraordinary. Nothing less than necessary, Valorum said. Tarkin arched a brow as he turned slightly. Necessary, perhaps, but certainly unprecedented. And I believe it speaks strongly to your desire to do what is best and right for the outlying systems. He lowered his voice to add, May I say how disquieted we were to learn of the recent attempt on your life, Supreme Chancellor. But then I suppose we all have our local troubles. Ryloth has its smugglers. King Varuna of Naboo has his detractors. And Ariadu has the Trade Federation and the possibility of taxation of the trade routes. Valorum was aware of some of the less than welcoming looks he was receiving from Tarkin's guests. News of the assassination attempt doesn't appear to have granted me much sympathy in this room. Tarkin gestured in dismissal. Our fears regarding taxation revolve around the potential for increased corruption, as is ever the case when additional layers of bureaucracy are positioned between those with power and those without. But that doesn't mean we favor separatism or encourage open rebellion. Like other worlds along the Rima, Eriadu has many Nebula Front supporters, but I am not one of them, nor are any of those in the governor's administration. Threats of insurrection must be met with strong, centralized power. One must seize the moment and strike. Tarkin lightened his diatribe with a self-deprecating laugh. Forgive the ravings of a lowly lieutenant governor, Supreme Chancellor. Moreover, I realize that it is hardly the Republic's way to answer violence with violence. I would have thought the same until recently, someone nearby interjected. Disdain and provocation mixed in the genteel feminine voice, and the speaker was every centimeter a lady, from the train of her priceless gown to her dazzlingly jeweled tiara. Tarkin smiled thinly as he offered his crooked arm to the heavyset woman and introduced her. Supreme Chancellor Valorum, it is my pleasure to present Lady Thialavandron of the Senex Sector. Taken off his guard, the flushed Valorum nodded his head in a courtly bow. Lady Van Braun, he said without emotion. It may interest you to know, Supreme Chancellor, that the hostage situation on Asmaru has been, shall we say, resolved. Asmaru, Tarkin said, what's this? Valorum quickly regained his composure. The Republic dispatched a peace delegation of judicials and Jedi to confront agents of the Nebula Front base there. Tarkin looked at him askance. Confront or contain? whichever was deemed appropriate. Tarkin's face lit up in revelation. So that's why several judicials and Jedi were called away from Eriadu. Well, either way, it appears that our policies are perhaps not so antithetical after all, Supreme Chancellor. On the heels of an assassination attempt, the Supreme Chancellor takes direct action in non-republic space, Lady Vandron said, looking at Tarkin. We are obliged to commend him on his willingness to venture so far from home in such difficult times. 
Valorum accepted the left-handed compliment with well-born reserve. Rest assured, Madam and Lieutenant Governor Tarkin, that Coruscant is in good hands. While Valorum didn't enjoy universal support even on Coruscant, his absence was felt, especially in the governmental district, where there was a hint of mischief in the air. The members of the Galactic Senate awarded themselves liberal leave while the trade summit was in progress, but a diligent few reported to their offices in the Senate building, if only to catch up on work. Bail Antilles was one of them. He had spent the morning drafting a proposal that would ease the trading tension between his native Alderaan and neighboring Delia. When he broke for lunch, he had nothing more on his mind than a tall glass of geyser ale at his favorite restaurant near the courts building. But politics foiled his plan, in the form of Senator Ornfrey Ta, who intercepted him in the Senate's most public of corridors. The corpulent blue twi'lek was riding a hoversled. May I glide beside you for a moment, Senator Antilles? he asked. Antilles made a gesture of acceptance. What is it? he said, plainly annoyed. To come directly to the point, some rather interesting data has found its way to me. I thought to bring it to the attention of Senator Palpatine, but he suggested that you, as chair of the Internal Activities Committee, were the one to whom I should speak. Antilles started to protest, then sighed in resignation. Go ahead, Senator. Ta's thick headtails quivered slightly in anticipation. As you know, I've recently been appointed to the Allocations Committee, and in that capacity, I have been delving into precedents and legalities for Supreme Chancellor Valorum's proposed taxation of the free trade zones. I'm certain you are, Antilles muttered. Ta took the sarcasm in stride. The Supreme Chancellor has stated his wish that a percentage of those revenues garnered through taxation of the trade routes, for all intents and purposes, taxation of the Trade Federation, be allocated for social and technological aid to worlds in the mid and outer rim that may be adversely affected by taxation. This, however, presents a dilemma. If the motion is ratified and the Federation is forced to surrender some of its hold on the space lanes, many smaller shipping concerns stand to profit, not only as a result of a newly fashioned competitive market, but also from those tax revenues earmarked for outer system development. Antilles allowed his puzzlement to show. I'm not sure I see the dilemma. Well, then, uh, permit me to illustrate a specific case. The Allocations Committee database conducted a search for Outer Rim corporations poised to benefit from taxation and cross-checked the results of the search with data on file with the Appropriations Committee, of which I am also a member. Out of the compiled list of thousands of corporations, one concern was singled out. A shipping concern based on Ariadu that has received a sudden and, may I add, substantial inflow of capital. That doesn't surprise me, Antilles said. Investors with their noses to the air are doing the same thing your committee is doing, except that they're looking for financial opportunities. Exactly, Taz said. Investor speculation. But in this case, the dilemma arises from the fact the concern is owned by relatives of Supreme Chancellor Valorum. Antilles came to a halt and turned to the hovering Twi'lek. Ta showed the palms of his big hands. Let me make perfectly clear that I am not suggesting impropriety on the part of the Supreme Chancellor. 
I merely find it curious that the Supreme Chancellor has not brought this seeming conflict of interest to the attention of the Senate. I'm confident that the dilemma will disappear once we have determined the origin of the investment and are satisfied that there is no link between those investors and Supreme Chancellor Valorum himself. Have you learned anything? Antilles asked. That's the other peculiar thing, Tal said. The deeper I dig for the sores, the more dead ends I encounter. It's almost as if someone doesn't wish to have it known where or with whom the investment originated. My lack of success is partially explained by the fact that I lack the necessary clearance to access the relevant financial files. Access of the sort to which I refer requires someone of high standing. Someone, well, like yourself. Antilles stared at him. I assume that you've collected the pertinent data, Senator. Ta restrained a smile. Oh, as a matter of fact, I uh, happen to have a copy with me. He proffered a data holocron. Antilles took it. I'll see what I can find out. The commandeered Hawkbat streaked toward Carthedium, a mottled green semicircle filling the gunship's forward spaceports. In the slung cockpit, Qui-Gon sat at the controls. Dressed in a poncho, scarf, and boots borrowed from Osmaru, he looked every part a member of the Nebula Front. Obi-Wan stood behind the co-pilot's chair, struggling out of his brown cloak. Put your robes there, Qui-Gon said, gesturing to the empty navigator's chair, along with your lightsaber. Obi-Wan froze. My lightsaber? Once we land, we want to be sure to give the wrong impression. With the Hawkbat grounded in the Carfedan docking bay, Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan, and Sindar descended the boarding ramp and set out to make inquiries at some of the disreputable cantinas and tap caffs that surrounded the spaceport. They weren't twenty meters from the ship when a pair of maintenance technicians intercepted them at the exit of the street. Hawkbat, right? The taller of the two said to Qui-Gon. Qui-Gon looked the man in the eye. Who's asking? Oh, no offense, Captain the other said, showing his grease-stained hands in a mollifying gesture. We just wanted to tell you that you just missed him. Obi-Wan started to say something, but thought better of it. We just missed him? Launched a couple of hours back, the tall one replied, with a full complement of crew and a beat-up Corellian freighter. Oh, that ship, Qui-Gon said. The shorter tech adopted a conspiratorial look. Are you three part of this Ariadu business? What do you think? Qui-Gon said rhetorically. The two techs traded meaningful glances. You wouldn't by chance need a couple of spare hands, would you, Captain? The taller one asked. Qui-Gon pretended to assess them. I've no need for technicians. What are your other talents? Same as the ones Cole was flying with, Captain, the tall one said with increasing assurance. Light and heavy arms, melee weapons, explosives, you name it. Small wars and revolutions, the other enthused. Qui-Gon nodded. I'll pass the word along to Captain Cole. The taller one nudged his partner in anticipation. Much appreciated, Captain. Can you tell us what's planned? The other asked. Just so we know how to prepare? Qui-Gon shook his head firmly. The taller man frowned. We understand. It's only that we heard it was extermination work. Qui-Gon said nothing in a blank-faced, definite way. Well, you know where to find us, Captain, the short one said. 
Qui-Gon let them take a few steps toward the exit before he called out. By the way, was Havoc with him? The question clearly puzzled them. Don't know the name, Captain, the shorter of the pair said. Just Cole, his Rodian sidekick, and the ones Cole had hired. The other man grinned broadly. And the woman. Qui-Gon raised his eyebrows. So she was there, too. The tall one laughed shortly. If looks could kill, eh, Captain? Qui-Gon didn't so much as glance at Obi-Wan until the pair had left the docking bay. But by that time, Sindar had already made his move. You're one lucky fellow, the humanoid said, holding his blaster where he could cover both of them. Not from where I'm standing, Qui-Gon said. You weren't meant to hear any of that, Sindar went on. I didn't know anything about Coles coming to Carfedian. So this was just to keep us away from Ariadu. Sindar sneered. Yeah, and this is as far as it goes, Jedi. Too bad you left your lightsabers on board. Qui-Gon folded his arms. We had to make you feel confident about drawing your blaster and revealing yourself. Huh? Obi-Wan threw a sound toward the ship and Sindar whirled. When he spun back to the two Jedi, they had moved. Spying Obi-Wan ten meters to his right, Sindar triggered a bolt. But Qui-Gon called on the Force to shove Sindar's blaster hand, and the bolt went wild. At the same instant, Obi-Wan leapt over Sindar's head, landing directly behind him. Sindar spun on his heel, prepared to fire. Obi-Wan swept his right leg through a forward circle, knocking the blaster from Sindar's hand. Crouching suddenly, he whirled one foot, kicking Sindar's legs out from under him. The thick-set humanoid fell hard on his side, but sprang nimbly to his feet and began to advance, throwing combinations of punches and kicks, which Obi-Wan blocked with his raised forearms and knees. Evading Obi-Wan's follow-up blows with bobs and twists, he squatted and made a sudden grab for Obi-Wan's right ankle. But Obi-Wan distanced himself by executing another backflip. The momentary lapse in the fighting was all Sindar needed. From an ankle holster, he drew a holdout blaster. The first bolt nicked Obi-Wan's right leg and sent him down on one knee. Qui-Gon appeared out of nowhere to drive him out of the path of the next bolt. Compact packets of energized light ripped through the docking bay, glancing off the walls and ceiling. Sindar tried to track the Jedi, but they moved too quickly for him. His next blast caromed from the underside of the hawk bat and recoiled crazily from the floor. Then, the firing ceased. Standing rigidly in front of Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, Sindar's gaze was unfocused and his mouth a rictus of surprise. When he toppled face down, they saw the burn of a blaster bolt that had ricocheted into the center of his back. Qui-Gon went to him and checked for signs of life. He's told us all he can. Obi-Wan picked himself up from the floor, favoring his sound leg. What now, master? he asked. Qui-Gon nodded to the hawk bat. We race Captain Cole to Eriadu. As a trading port, Eriadu was accustomed to seeing its polluted skies filled with vessels. The trade summit, however, set a new record for traffic, both below and high in orbit. Among the thousands of ships anchored above the planet's bright side was a rundown Corellian freighter, the current object of interest of a heavily armed picket ship bearing the emblem of Eriadu Customs and Immigration. Between the picket and the freighter moved a small single-winged craft, twice the size of a standard starfighter. Rella and Boyne watched the craft approach from one of the freighter's starboard viewports. 
Dressed alike in knee-high boots, bloused trousers, vests and soft caps with short brims, they might have been veteran spacers. We'll play this by the numbers, Rella said. Customs officials aren't trained to be nasty. They're born that way. She glanced at Boiny. Want to go over any of it again? The Rodian shook his head. I'll follow your lead. They went to the starboard airlock and waited for it to cycle. Shortly, three humans in flashy uniforms came aboard, accompanied by a mean-tempered Saurian quadruped fitted with an electronic collar. The beast's tongue flicked from its slash of mouth, licking the air. Nearly as tall as Rella, the chief inspector was a slender, light-complexioned woman. Her blonde hair was pulled severely back and woven into a long braid behind her head. The two customs agents and their sniffer headed for the rear of the ship. The chief watched them go, then followed Rella and Boiny into the freighter's forward cabin. Your shipping manifest, she demanded, extending her right hand to Rella. Rella prized a data card from the breast pocket of her vest and slapped it into the woman's palm. The chief inserted the card into a portable reader and studied the device's small display screen. From aft came a sudden growling sound. The chief looked over her shoulder. Your sniffer must have gotten a whiff of our galley, Boiny said jocularly. The woman's stern expression didn't waver. I can't make sense of this, she said after a moment, motioning to the reader's display screen with the backs of her fingertips. She eyed Rella with suspicion. What exactly is your cargo, Captain? Rella leveled a blaster at her. Trouble. The woman's eyes widened. Noises behind her prompted her to glance over her shoulder once more. Two robust humans and a goatle answered her obvious surprise with pernicious grins. We're holding the other two aft, Lope said. The animal's dead. Good work, Rella said, deftly disarming the chief. She swung back to Boiny and the others. Position yourselves at the airlock and be ready to receive company. The mercenaries enabled their blasters and hurried off. Not fifteen minutes later, and now wearing the chief's uniform, Rella entered the bridge of the picket ship and swept her eyes over the instruments. Boiny's charge, the chief, followed, her wrists sporting stun cuffs and the rest of her clothed in Rella's spacer garb. Boiny motioned the woman into the co-pilot's chair. Rella fastened the chief's seat harness in such a way that the woman could scarcely move. Then she accepted an adhesive strip from Boiny and plastered it over the chief's mouth. You sit tight for a while, Rella said, squatting to eye level with the woman. We won't be long. She and Boiny went aft to the picket's small rear compartment. Cole and the mercenaries were already there, pressed in among a half-dozen two-meter-tall cargo tubes that had been conveyed from the freighter. All of them were wearing rebreathers and extravehicular suits with armor-ply vests beneath. Is this necessary? One of the humans was asking Cole, gesturing to the upright cargo tubes. I suppose you'd rather blast your way through customs, is that it? No, Captain, the man answered sullenly. Reluctantly, the man opened the cargo tube's narrow hatch and squeezed inside. It's like a coffin in here. Then just be happy you're still alive, Cole said, securing the door from the outside. With similar aversion, the others began to secrete themselves. You too, Cole, Rella said. Wish I could be joining you, Captain, Boiny said with a smile. Cole scowled. You're lucky there was a Rodian on the inspection team, or I'd have you sharing a canister with Lope. He turned to Rella. I 
I know exactly how we would have pulled this off without your help. She narrowed her eyes at him. Save it, Cole. I just want to get us out of it in one piece. He stepped into the canister. Seriously, I don't deserve you. That's the first true thing you've said. Cole grinned at her. She sealed the cargo tube and looked at Boiny. Ready the ship to leave orbit. A half dozen hover sleds were on hand to meet the customs ship when it touched down at Ariadu's overtaxed spaceport. Still fettered by stun cuffs, but with her mouth free of the adhesive strip, the chief was the first to step from the picket's hatch. She took one look at the humanoid and alien operators of the hover sleds and inhaled sharply. Who are you people? she asked in utter dismay. You don't really want to know that, Rella said from just behind her. Rella nodded to Boiny, who placed a small styrette to the chief's neck and injected her with a measure of clear fluid. Instantly, the woman slumped back into Boiny's arms. Stow her in one of the empty cargo canisters, Rella said. We'll take her with us for safekeeping. She hopped down onto one of the hover sleds. We have to work fast, she cautioned Havoc's downside contingent of terrorists. It won't be long before the freighter is discovered and searched. Rella rode one of the repulsor lift flatbeds to the picket's aft hatch, which was already open. There, she leapt into the rear compartment and wrapped her knuckles against the matte surface of Cole's container. Not much longer, she said quietly. When the coffin-like canisters had been loaded, the flotilla of hover sleds moved across the spaceport's Duracrete apron to the customs warehouse, where more of Havoc's terrorists were guarding the rollaway doors. The hover sleds streamed into the warehouse in single file, the rollaway doors closing behind them. At once, the humanoid and alien pilots began to unseal the canisters, which opened with a hiss of escaping atmosphere. Cole climbed from his coffin, pulled off his rebreather, and jumped to the sawdust-covered floor, gazing around expectantly. The place smelled of spacecraft exhaust and hydrocarbons. Punctual as ever, Captain, Havoc said as he and a group of his cohorts emerged from behind a palisade of stacked cargo bins. Sporting a colorful headcloth and scarf that left only his eyes exposed, the Nebula Front militant started for the now motionless sleds, coming to an abrupt halt when he saw Rella. I thought you'd retired. I had a memory lapse, she told him, but I'm about to get over it. Havoc appraised the gathered mercenaries and turned to Cole. Will they follow orders? If you feed them regularly, Cole said. What do we do with this one? Lope asked, indicating the still unconscious customs chief. Leave her there, Havoc answered. We'll take care of her. He swung back to Cole. Captain, if you'll follow me, we can conclude your part in this. That suits me fine, Cole said. Havoc glanced at Lope and the others. The rest of you wait here. I'll brief you when I return. In a restricted area of the spaceport, Adi Galia met Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan as they stepped from the sharp-nosed shuttle that had brought them downside. The High Council's favorite Jedi, Adi said as Qui-Gon approached, his long hair and brown cloak stirred by the wind. I have expected you and your loyal Padawan to come bolting overhead in Captain Cole's gunship. We left the Hawkbat in orbit, Qui-Gon replied without humor. What's the situation here? Master Tian... Kiadi Mundi, Verger, and some of the others are on their way from Coruscant. What about Captain Cole? Adi shook her head, the tails of her tight-fitting bonnet whipping about her handsome features. No one fitting Cole's description has passed through Ariadu immigration. 
Could we have arrived first, Master? Obi-Wan asked. The Hawkbat is about the fastest ship I've ever flown in. Addy waited for Qui-Gon's response, which was to shake his head negatively. Cole is here somewhere. I can feel him. Havoc led the way down a long corridor. Against one wall were slumped a dozen or so bound, gagged, and blindfolded customs agents who voiced muffled exclamations of fury as Cole, Rella, and Boiny passed. Havoc continued on to a room that housed the warehouse's small power plant. He opened the door and gestured everyone inside. Havoc's demeanor changed as soon as he shut the door behind him. He unwound the cloth scarf that concealed his face and threw it to the floor. Cole regarded him curiously. What's gotten you so jumpy, Havoc? You, Havoc seethed. You've nearly ruined everything. Cole swapped brief looks with his comrades, then said, What are you babbling about? Havoc fought to compose himself. The Jedi learned that you've been hiring assassins and that you're planning something for Ariadu. Your likeness is all over the holonet. Again, the Jedi. Cole narrowed his gaze at Havoc. I thought you and Sindar were supposed to keep them occupied. We did our part. We lured the Jedi to Osmaru, and we managed to lure even more of them away from Eriadu. But you, you left a trail any amateur could follow, and now Sindar's dead because of it. You'll forgive me if I don't sob, Cole said flatly. Havoc ignored the remark and began to pace the floor. I've been forced to modify the entire plan. If it wasn't for the help of our advisor... Take it easy, Havoc. Cole cut him off. You're going to give yourself a stroke. Havoc came to a halt behind Rella and aimed his forefinger at Cole. I'm going to have to use the ones you delivered to fashion a diversion. Cole's features warped into a mask of acrimony. I can't allow that, Havoc. I didn't deliver them here to be killed. They trust me. Content yourself that they'll die rich, Captain. What's more, I don't care what you think you can and cannot allow. I won't have you interfering in this. Cole laughed shortly. You're going to stop me? He turned and started for the door. Stay where you are. Havoc made a sudden grab for Rella's blaster. She tried to turn away but wasn't in time. Havoc threw his left forearm around her neck and pressed the blaster to the side of her head. Cole stopped dead in his tracks and turned slowly toward him. Boiny was about as far from Havoc as he was, but neither of them risked a move. You haven't got the stomach for this kind of work, Havoc, Cole said in a controlled voice. Put the blaster down and let her go. Havoc only tightened his chokehold on Rella. She clamped her hands on his forearm. You said it yourself, Captain. Anyone can be killed. I'll do it if you try to leave. I swear I'll do it. Cole glanced at Boiny before replying. Havoc, think it through. You're the brains, remember? You hired us to be the brawn. Havoc's face was red with fury and panic. He was trembling from head to foot. You underestimate me. You always have. All right, Cole said. Maybe I have. That still doesn't mean... I'm sorry it has to be this way, Havoc interrupted. But when it comes to safeguarding the interests of the Outer Rim, people like you and Rella and me are expendable. Our advisor prefers as few loose ends as possible in any case. The door opened, and two of Havoc's confederates entered the room with blasters raised. Cole saw the sorrow in Rella's dark, beautiful eyes. Oh, Cole, she said in a sad, quiet voice. <laughs> Abruptly, Havoc raised his blaster and fired. The bolt whizzed past Rella's head, hitting Cole in the chest. 
A second bolt struck the wall behind Cole and glanced off into the room. <laughs> Twisting to one side, Cole threw himself at the two men by the door, dropping both with a body block. At the same instant, Rella bent her right leg at the knee and raised her foot into Havoc's groin. He stumbled backwards, gasping for breath, but managed to hold on to the blaster. Boiny hurled himself at Rella, intent on driving her to the floor, but Havoc began to fire wildly, catching Rella in the neck and Boiny in the side of the head. Wrestling with the two men he had knocked down, Cole heard the blaster bolts and saw Rella collapse in a heap. Sudden rage rushed to his aid in ripping a blaster from one of the men and killing him with a shot to the face. The other man rolled and came to his feet in a crouch, loosing a volley of bolts at Cole. Cole felt intense heat sear his thigh, abdomen, and forehead. He flew back against the wall and slid slowly to the floor, the blaster slipping from his grip. Across the room, a groan escaped Boiny, and he turned over onto his back, blood oozing from his head. Through half-closed eyes, Cole stared at Rella. A single tear moved in fits and starts down her right cheek to her jawline. Cole extended his right hand toward her, only to have it fall to his side, like dead weight. Havoc, he said weakly, before his head fell to his chest. His back pressed to the wall. A quaking Havoc dropped Rella's blaster, as if he had just realized he was holding it. He gazed wide-eyed at his comrade. Is... is she dead? Keeping his blaster ready, the human went first to Rella, and to Boiny, and finally Cole. Yes, and these two are well on the way. What should we do with them? Havoc gulped and found his voice. The authorities are hunting for Captain Cole, he stammered nervously. Perhaps we should let them find him. And the others, the ones Cole brought? Havoc considered it briefly. Then he retrieved the scarf he had thrown to the floor and began to wind it around his lower face. They know me only as Havoc, he said, and moved for the door. If the attack on Valorum didn't make him the focus of this summit, Asmaru certainly did, Senator Borgracchus of Sluis Van was telling Palpatine as they moved in step with the slow flow of other delegates toward Ariadu Spaceport's immigration scanners. Human or alien, almost everyone was draped in robes and capes of the finest cloth, including Palpatine and his temporary companion in the snaking line. Palpatine summoned an ambiguous smile. I'm certain that the Supreme Chancellor will ease everyone's concerns when he addresses the delegates. And we'll all be eager to hear what he has to say, Gracchus replied contemptuously. Since with one hand he seeks to punish the Trade Federation with taxation while with the other he strokes them by eradicating the Federation's most dangerous antagonist. Palpatine's seeming good humor didn't falter. One must make adjustments as necessary. Despite assiduous planning, not everything can be foreseen. Gracchus snorted. Perhaps you should consider placing your name in nomination for high office, Senator. Palpatine brushed the remark aside. I'm content to play my small part behind the scenes. For the moment, I suspect, Gracchus said contemptuously as Palpatine hurried ahead of him in the line. Newt Gunray's red eyes meandered over the line of delegates waiting to be scanned by Ariadu's primitive scanning devices. His gaze fell on two human senators, one rotund and plebeian, the other, straight-backed and refined, engaged in what appeared to be a spirited exchange. He looked down from his mechno-chair at Senator Lot Dodd. Who is the human in the blue cloak? 
There, speaking with the pudgy one. Dodd followed the viceroy's raised forefinger. Senator Palpatine of Naboo. A friend of ours? Dodd shook his head dubiously. He gives all indication of holding to a middle course, Viceroy, although I heard that he encouraged Valorum to send judicials to the Senex sector. A potential friend, then, Gunray said. Soon enough, we will know where everyone stands. Fore and aft, and to both sides of Viceroy Gunray and Senator Dodd, marched security droids, their blaster rifles mounted behind their right shoulders. The droids constituted the Nemoidians' reply to Ariadu's offer to provide protection. And yet, Gunray was anxious. The Sith Lord had communicated with him only once, since arranging the meeting between the Nemoidians and the Bactoid and Tower Chawl arms merchants. The communication had been brief and one-sided, with Sidious stressing the importance of Gunray's attending the trade summit and assuring him as ever that everything was going according to plan. But had he entered into a true partnership, or one in which Sidious would emerge as the Nemoidian's overlord? How long could a Sith Lord content himself with mere economic power? And what was likely to become of Viceroy Newt Gunray, once Darth Sidious set his sights on a target more worthy of his dark expertise? Already, Deputy Viceroy Hath Manchar and Commander Dofine had aired their separate misgivings about the Alliance, scarcely realizing that the partnership had as much been forced on Gunray as offered to him. The Sith Lord had promised that he would communicate with Gunray once more before the summit began. Perhaps, the Viceroy hoped, all would then be revealed. Havoc and his cohort returned to the main room of the customs warehouse at the distant rumble of spacecraft launches. The five mercenaries Cole had assembled were sitting on the edges of the repulsor sleds that had borne them to the warehouse. From the jittery way Havoc moved, Lope knew that something unexpected had taken place. He jumped down from the hovering sled to gaze down the corridor that led to the rear of the building. Where's Captain Cole? he asked Havoc. Above the scarf that swathed his face, Havoc's eyes narrowed as he swung to face him. Cole went out the back way, but he sends his luck. Before anyone else could raise questions, he asked Lope, What's your preferred weapon? Lope took a second look down the corridor, then returned to the sleds. Blades, of any length. Havoc turned to one of the other humans. Yours? he asked in an increasingly confident voice. Sniper rifles. Havoc glanced at the goatel. I'm not a shooter. I'm a lookout. Havoc studied the remaining pair of humans, a brutish-looking man and an equally rough-cut woman. No preferences, the man grunted. The same, the woman said. Havoc took a portable holo projector from his pocket and set it atop an alloy cargo crate. Everyone gathered round as an image of a classic-era building with a domed roof took shape in the cone of light. The site of the trade summit, Havoc said, as the image began to rotate, showing tall, slender towers at each corner and four principal entrances. Havoc called up a panoramic view of the interior. True to their exaggerated sense of self-importance, the Ariadu delegation has placed itself at the center of the hall. The Coruscant delegation will occupy east side tiers of seats here, with the members of the Trade Federation Directorate in west side tiers. Delegations representing the core worlds, the inner rim, and the outlying systems will be dispersed throughout the rest of the hall. In the event of trouble, the Federation Directorate will be able to activate a force field, but Valorum's delegation is deliberately unshielded as a show of good faith. 
the sniper scrutinized the image for a moment. Lorem is going to be a difficult target, even from the highest tier in the rotunda. You'll be higher than that, Havoc said. The upper portion of the hall is a maze of maintenance walkways and gantries, along with booths designed for media personnel. We'd have a better chance of hitting Valorum before he enters the building, Lope said. Perhaps, Havoc conceded, but the plan hinges on our ability to infiltrate the summit and do the job there. Four entrances, the sniper said. Which one is Valorum coming through? Havoc shook his head. Unknown. That's why we need a spotter team on the outside. Havoc conjured another image from the hollow projector, showing the older quarter of the city, where the summits of innumerable buildings merged into an extensive range of rounded rooftops and elegant towers. Havoc indicated one of the domed rooftops. From here, there's a decent view of the four boulevards that lead to the summit hall's separate entrances. The spotters, he pointed to Lope, the Gotel, and the woman, will have just enough time to position yourselves on the roof between air suites. Access to the roof is through a safe house we maintain on Ariadu. The safe house will also serve as our rendezvous point after we're finished, or should something unforeseen occur beforehand. Valorum's hovercade will be easy to spot. As soon as you've ascertained the route, you'll communicate that information to the rest of us. Havoc motioned one of his alien confederates forward. The Nikto placed a suitcase atop the same crate that supported the hollow projector and opened it. Havoc lifted a jacket from the suitcase and handed it to the sniper. This will identify you as Ariadu Security, he explained. You'll be in the summit hall before any of the delegations arrive. Once we've learned which entrance Valorum is coming through, you'll get into whatever position you deem best. The sniper folded the uniform jacket over his arm. When do I take the shot? The proceedings will commence with a series of three prolonged trumpet fanfares, Havoc went on. Plan to fire at the start of the third fanfare. Valorum will already be in his seat? Havoc nodded as he brought back the image of the interior of the hall. He will, but you're going to place your first bolt here. The sniper stared at the spot on the summit hall floor, Havoc had indicated, then gazed in puzzlement at Havoc. I don't get it. Who's going to be there? No one. No one, the sniper repeated, then began to shake his head. I don't know where you're going with this, but I've got a reputation to uphold. And when I'm hired to shoot, I don't miss. Havoc grumbled beneath his scarf. All right, so choose a target. Wound someone. Lope stepped forward. I thought we had a target. Valorum. Havoc confirmed it with a nod and glanced at everyone. But I don't want any of you doing the actual shooting. While Lope and the rest were trading looks, Havoc deactivated the hollow projector and set it aside. At the same time, a pair of bith began to open the alloy crate the device had been sitting on and slid from it a box-like tangle of alloy limbs and a long cylinder of head. Meet the most important member of our team, Havoc said, built specially for us by the same company that supplies the Trade Federation with its security droids. Taking a small remote control from his pocket, he entered the code into the touchpad, and a battle droid unfolded into an upright posture, its arms at its side and a blaster rifle mounted alongside its backpack. The Nikto pried a restraining bolt from the chest plastron of the almost two-meter-tall droid and stepped to the side. The restraining bolt hit the floor and rolled beneath the closest propulsor sled. Havoc keyed in another code. Instantly, the droid reached over its shoulder for the blaster rifle. With matching speed, the mercenaries reacted by adopting defensive positions and drawing their own weapons. 
Settle down, Havoc said loudly, gesturing with his hands. Again, he keyed the remote. When the battle droid had returned the rifle to its mounting, Havoc began to circle it. It's harmless, he assured everyone, unless I tell it to be otherwise. The Gotel was the only one who hadn't reholstered his weapon. I can't work with a droid, he said angrily. Their energy waves overload my senses. You're not going to have to work with it, Havoc said. It's also going to be inside the hall. Lope and the sniper swapped concerned glances. Who's leading him in? Lope asked. The Trade Federation. The sniper worked his square jaw. Are you telling me that the droid is the actual shooter? Havoc nodded. Then why do you have me shooting at the floor? Because your bolt is going to touch off a chain of events that will allow our alloy teammate here to execute his commands. Havoc regarded the droid. It doesn't need a control computer, but it does need to perceive a threat before it can be tasked. Lope started shaking his head. You want this to end up looking like it was the Trade Federation that killed Valorum. The rest of the mercenaries stared at Havoc. You object to that? Captain Cole said that this was going to be a straightforward job, the sniper protested. He didn't say anything about the Trade Federation. Captain Cole wasn't briefed on the full extent of the plan, Havoc replied coolly. There was no point risking a leak. Lope forced a short laugh. I guess we can appreciate that. Just one more question, Havoc. Where will you be during all this? Where I can watch over all of you, he said, and let it go at that. From the tile mosaic floor of the summit hall, Qui-Gon peered up at the tiers of seats, the banks of ornate arch-topped windows, and high overhead, the media booths and maintenance walkways. Qui-Gon's eyes were drawn once more to the overhead walkways and gantries, many of which supported arrays of spotlights and acoustic devices. Snipers could be placed almost at will, he told himself. Assassins without regard for their own lives could inflict incalculable injury. Do you sense anything, Master? Obi-Wan asked from behind him. Only that we are fighting something unseen, Obi-Wan. Each time we draw close to identifying our adversary, it subverts and evades us. Then it isn't Captain Cole? Qui-Gon shook his head. There is an organizing hand at work here, one that moves Cole about as effortlessly as it moves us. Not this havoc? Qui-Gon pondered it momentarily, then shook his head again. It has no name that I know, Padawan. Perhaps the mystery owes to nothing more than my inability to see beyond the moment. What do you feel? Obi-Wan's expression became serious. I feel that we're close to resolving this, Master. Qui-Gon touched him on the shoulder. That's comforting to hear. Qui-Gon, Master Tian called out suddenly. Qui-Gon turned to find him and Kiadi Mundi hurrying across the floor toward them. Captain Cole's freighter has been found, Tian continued. The Corellian freighter. Ten customs agents were found tied up in the rear cabin. Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan swapped brief looks. How do they know it's the one Cole piloted here? The Nava computer indicates that the ship jumped to Ariadu from Carfedian space, Kiadi Mundi explained. Cole must have piloted the customs agent's ship to the surface, Qui-Gon surmised. Tian nodded as he came to a halt in front of Qui-Gon. The customs ship has been located at the spaceport. We should see for ourselves, Obi-Wan said in a rush. Then he stopped himself and regarded Tian. What prompted anyone to conduct a search of the freighter? 
Tian appeared to have anticipated the question, along with Qui-Gon's look of wary concern. The authorities received an anonymous lead. Cole's eyelids fluttered, then snapped open. Boiny's blood-smeared face swam unfocused in his gaze. He felt nauseated and wired. He knew that he should be in great pain, but he was only vaguely aware of his body. Boiny had obviously dosed him with pain blockers. Cole tasted blood in his mouth, and something else, the syrupy astringency of Bacta. Boiny's features began to sharpen and come into focus. A blaster bolt had burned a deep furrow in the left side of the Rodian's greenish skull. The wound glistened with freshly applied Bacta, but Cole doubted that the miracle substance would prevail. His memory made a hurried return. He began to drag himself across the floor, to where Rella's body lay unmoving, unmoving and cold when he stretched out his hand and grazed her face with his fingertips. Boiny was suddenly beside him. She's dead, Captain, he said, anguished. By the time I came to, there was nothing I could do. Cole crawled the final meter to Rella. He threw his right arm over her shoulders, tugging her to him, and weeping quietly for a long moment. He had to come back, he said quietly, between sobs. Then he rolled over and glared at Boiny. You should have let me die. Boiny had clearly anticipated his rage. If you were close to dying, I might have been able to do that. He tugged Cole's ragged shirt aside to expose the thick armor-ply garment beneath. The vest absorbed most of the charge, but you have internal injuries. He glanced at Cole's tattered left thigh, then leaned over to examine his forehead. I did the best I could with your other wounds. Cole managed to sit up. Glancing around the room, he spied the man he had killed laying face up on the floor, exactly where the blaster had dropped him. Otherwise, the room was empty. He looked back at Boiny. Why didn't they finish us? This wasn't supposed to happen. I figured that Havoc panicked. Cole thought about it for a moment. No. The Jedi are onto us. He wants us to be found. He paused briefly, then added, But he isn't fool enough to believe I'd keep quiet about this mission out of some misguided sense of honor. I'll wager that he's counting on the fact that you won't betray Lope and the others. Cole nodded slowly. Havoc read me right, but he's going to regret not killing me when he had the chance. With visible effort, he raised himself up on his uninjured right knee. Are any of them still in the warehouse? Only the customs agents secured in the corridor. The cargo bay is deserted. Cole extended his arm to the Rodian. Help me up. He winced as Boiny tugged him to his feet. Gingerly, he planted his left foot on the floor and nearly collapsed. I'm going to need a crutch. I'll fix you up with something, Boiny said. Cole balanced on his good leg. He thought his heart might burst if he looked at Rella again, but he forced his gaze downward nevertheless. Some of us were born to be betrayed, he whispered. I can't make it up to you, Rella. But I can try with everything I've got left to avenge you. Supported on the crutch the Rodian had fashioned from a length of pipe and a cloth-padded brace of plasteel, Cole followed Boiny out into the corridor. The bound and blindfolded customs agents were scarcely aware of them as they moved stealthily toward the warehouse's spaceport entrance. The female agent whose uniform Rella had taken remained unconscious from the shot Boiny had given her aboard the ship. The front room was loud with the noise of launches and landings, despite the rollaway doors being closed. 
The repulsor sleds were still hovering a meter off the sawdust-strewn floor, and everything else was much as Cole remembered it. Boiney studied the room for a moment, then walked to the center of the floor, two meters from the sled. There was a cargo crate here. Cole eyed the telltale marks in the sawdust. Too large for a weapons crate. Looking around, the two of them spotted the portable hollow projector at the same time. It was resting on the retracted landing strut of one of the sleds. Boiney reached it first. Setting it atop the sled, he activated it. Cole limped over as the device was beginning to cycle through its stored images. The summit hall, he said, in response to the 3D image of the majestic dome-roofed building and the mount it crowned. Boiney allowed the images to cycle again, pausing the device when it displayed a remote view of the wooded mount and the four broad avenues that terminated at the hall. The vantage from the cluster of rooftops we saw earlier, Boiney said, already initiating a reverse scan through the images. Havoc could be planning to attack Valorum before he arrives at the summit. Cole tugged at what was left of his beard while he considered it. He gestured to the hollow projector. He didn't forget to take this. He wanted it to be found, just the way he wanted us to be found. Abruptly, Boiney ducked down beneath one of the repulsor sleds. Here's something he probably expects to be found, he said as he was standing up. Cole narrowed his eyes at the stubby metallic cylinder Boiney showed him. A restraining bolt? But an uncommon variety. Boiney brought the bolt to eye level similar to the ones we fired into the security droids aboard the Revenue, but altered to suit a more advanced droid. Maybe a combat model. Havoc has a droid, Cole said, mostly to himself. His eyes searched the floor. Could that be what was in the crate? Boiney adopted a skeptical look. The nebula front employing droids? That can't be right. He regarded the bolt again. One thing is certain, Captain... This bolt has already been in a droid. I can see the impressions left by whatever tool pried it out. Cole took the bolt and clenched his hand around it. I warned Havoc that someone in the nebula front had informed the judicial department about our plans to attack the revenue. Suppose he decided to take extra precautions when planning this operation. Cole looked at Boiney. Havoc said that the nebula front had lured the Jedi to Asmaru. That could mean that the attempt on Valorum's life on Coruscant was a ruse designed to divert attention from Ariadu. Right, Boiney said uncertainly. Cole glanced at the hollow projector. Havoc leaves us and the hollow projector to be discovered by the authorities. He grinned wickedly. I'm not sure how Havoc plans to do it, Boiney, but I think I know what he's planning to do. Captain? the Rodian said in confusion. Cole shoved the restraining bolt into his breast pocket and began to limp toward the corridor. Boiney followed him, gesturing back to the hollow projector. Shouldn't I at least delete this thing? Cole shook his head. Hide it in plain sight, just as Havoc did. The only way we're going to get to him is by making sure that everyone else keeps chasing their own tails. Outside the front entrance to Lieutenant Governor Tarkin's palatial residence, Valorum, Seitaria, and the rest of the Coruscant delegation waited for their caravan of repulsor lift vehicles to arrive. I trust that your stay with us has been pleasant, 
Tarkin was saying to Valorum. Very pleasant, Valorum replied. Permit me to extend the same courtesy to you, should you ever visit Coruscant. Tarkin smiled without showing his teeth. I hope, Supreme Chancellor, that Coruscant will one day be a second home to me. Or the core, in fact, from Coruscant to Alderaan. I'm certain it will. Tarkin was about to add something when a land speeder leapt into view, making fast for where he and Valorum were standing. What now? Tarkin asked as the two-seater pulled up to the house and came to a halt. Absent their Jedi cloaks, Adi Gallia and Sacy Tian climbed from the hovering vehicle and made straight for Valorum. Tian did the talking. Supreme Chancellor, there is a problem. We have confirmation that assassins contracted by the Nebula Front have breached Eriadu security. Qui-Gon Jinn and several other Jedi have gone to the spaceport in the hope of intercepting them. The danger is no longer conjectural, Supreme Chancellor, Adi said earnestly. Valorum's forehead wrinkled in apprehension. I want them found, he said at last. I will not have the summit interrupted. Tian and Adi nodded. Will you now consent to our accompanying you? Tian asked. No, Valorum said flatly. Appearances must be maintained. Adi looked hard at him. Then will you at least agree to keeping your vehicle's force field enabled? I absolutely insist on it, Tarkin interjected. It is Eriadu's obligation to assure that no harm comes to you. With obvious reluctance, Valorum nodded. Until we've reached the grounds of the Summit Hall. Eriadu security agents were already on the scene by the time Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan, Berger, and Ki-Adi-Mundi reached the customs warehouse. The uniformed human commander of the security detail entered from a dimly lighted corridor. Seeing the four Jedi, the commander approached. Qui-Gon introduced himself and the others. We have two dead humans in the rear room, the commander said. One male, one female, each dead of blaster bolts fired at close range, but from different weapons. Carbon scoring on the floor and walls indicate a full-scale blaster fight. Blood spots show that at least one of the combatants who got away was a Rodian. Bacta patches, synth flesh, and who knows what else is missing from the room's med kit. We're waiting for results on finger and handprint analysis. Captain Cole's partner is a Rodian, Qui-Gon said. The commander made note of it on a data pad, then pointed to the group of customs agents. They were taken by surprise by no less than eight heavily armed assailants, most of them human, but at least four Nikto and a couple of Bith. After the surprise raid, they were stashed in the corridor, so they can't provide much in the way of additional information. But the woman there is chief officer of the customs ship the terrorists commandeered. She identified the dead female in the back room as captain of the Corellian freighter she boarded. She's still a bit dazed from a knockout injection, but she says she also saw a Rodian, and she thinks she remembers seeing a Gotel and a couple of human males. Everyone appears to have left the warehouse through a rear door that opens on the spaceport service road. We're assuming that they're piloting skimmers or land speeders. The commander stepped toward the center of the room and gestured broadly. Everything here is just as we found it, except that little piece of hardware. Qui-Gon and the other Jedi followed his finger to a portable holoprojector sitting atop a cargo crate. 
Whatever else he is, Cole is not careless, Qui-Gon said. Deliberate is the way we're reading it, too. But even professionals have been known to make mistakes. The commander looked at Qui-Gon. All this give you any insights? Captain Cole, the Rodian, and the woman must have been ambushed in the rear room. Ambushed? By Havoc? Qui-Gon nodded. Havoc thought all three were dead? No, he expected us to find Cole and the Rodian alive. Why would he risk that? the commander asked. Qui-Gon looked at him. Because he wants to throw us off the scent. The commander scratched his head in thought. Obi-Wan slid the hollow projector toward him. Let's see what we find in here. Lope peered through the small doorway that led to the roof of the Nebula Front safe house in the southern part of the city. A security craft made a low pass from the south, continuing on in the direction of the summit hall. Right on schedule, he told the five human and alien terrorists crouching on the stairs below him. We have ten minutes. The goatle squeezed by him and scampered out onto the roof, his ringed horns twitching as they monitored the hazy air for portents. Five meters from the doorway, the goatle flashed Lope an all-clear sign and disappeared behind the first of the many domed rooftops they would need to traverse before attaining a clear view of the summit hall. Lope and the rest hurried outside, rounding the same dome that now concealed the goatle. On his hip, Lope wore a sheathed vibroblade and on his wrist a rocket launcher. The others carried both in-close weapons and blasters. With the goatle at point, they began to move at a steady clip, worming through tight meanders, negotiating precipitous ledges and leaping to adjacent rooftops. Their mimetic suits allowed them to blend with the gray roof tiles, reddish bricks, and acid-rain-stained domes. They scaled a tall roof and dropped down into a hollow formed by a quartet of contiguous domes. Then they edged around a massive cupola that gave them their first unobstructed view of the summit hall. A long stretch of flat roof ran all the way to the final dome, below which two streets joined to become a broad boulevard that arrived ultimately at the summit hall mount. They were halfway across the flat roof when sounds of a commotion reached them from street level. Lope crawled to the edge of the roof and looked down over the low retaining wall. Squads of riot control security troops were rerouting ground traffic and dispersing bystanders who had gathered for a glimpse of whatever dignitaries might pass by. Lope saw a hovercade approaching from the south and waved for one of Havoc's men to join him at the wall. The convoy of ten repulsor-lift vehicles was being escorted by as many speeder bikes piloted by helmeted police. Havoc's man trained electro-binoculars on the fifth vehicle in line. Valorum, he uttered in a hushed voice. Iriadu's governor and lieutenant governor are with him. Lope asked for the electro-binoculars. Your boss should have listened to reason and let us hit Valorum here. He patted the rocket launcher strapped to his right wrist. One shot with this and the job would be done. Havoc's confederate took back the electro-binoculars. For the moment, Havoc's your boss, too. Besides, Valorum's riding under the protection of an energy shield. Now get on the comlink and inform the team at the summit hall that the target will be arriving through the south gate. Lope crawled back to where the others were waiting and removed a small comlink from his pocket. Valorum's right below us, he explained. 
He activated the comlink and keyed in the number Havoc had given him, but all he got for his efforts was an earful of static. You need to get above some of these antenna arrays, the Gothel suggested. Try from the top of the big dome. Lope nodded. Jogging in a crouch to the base of the dome, he began his ascent. But he was just short of the ornamented summit when he heard engine noise behind him. Over his shoulder, he saw three airspeeders approaching rapidly from the direction of the summit hall. He slid down the dome and hurried back to the others. Other patrol headed our way. The woman Cole had hired glanced at her wrist timer. It's too soon for them to be making another sweep. Everyone hunkered down as the blunt-nosed hovers sped overhead. But the trio of vehicles went only a short distance before coming about for a second pass. They spotted us, the Gotel said. Lope armed the rocket launcher. We can remedy that. Raising his right forearm, he fixed his sights on the lead vehicle. From the passenger seat of an airspeeder, all of Ariadu City looked the same. That, at least, was Qui-Gon's considered opinion after more than an hour of searching the city from above for the location of the roofscape image stored in Havoc's projector. It was little wonder that none of the security officers had been able to identify the span of roofs Havoc's projector had singled out. Qui-Gon continued to believe that Havoc had wanted the projector to be found, but he wasn't willing to take the chance that Havoc's leaving the device behind hadn't constituted a genuine oversight. Just now, the trio of airspeeders was approximately two kilometers south of the summit hall. Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan were passengers in the lead vehicle, trailed by Kiadimundi and Berger in the second, and two judicials in the third. Gazing down over the speeder's starboard gunnel, Qui-Gon thought he glimpsed movement on one of the rooftops. But when he shielded his eyes with the edge of his hand and looked again, all he saw was what might have been heat shimmer at the base of a slender brick tower. He reached out through the force. At the same instant, the speeder's terrain-following computer began to chirp repeatedly, indicating that it had matched the image. The computer's screen displayed the stored image superimposed on the roofscape directly below. Pivoting in his seat, Qui-Gon saw Kiadimundi wave a sign of acknowledgement that the computer of the second airspeeder had also discovered the match. The Ariadu security officer at the controls banked the airspeeder through a sweeping turn and was headed back toward the stretch of roofs when the craft's threat assessor suddenly added its voice to the steady chirping of the terrain-following computer. Missile lock, the pilot said in astonishment. Obi-Wan leaned over the side of the craft and pointed to something below. There, Master. Qui-Gon caught sight of the small rocket and realized at once that it had been launched from the base of the tower just where he had detected movement moments earlier. The pilot dropped the airspeeder into an abrupt dive, prepared to execute another maneuver should the missile home in on them, but the rocket stayed true to its original course. Narrowly missing the rear of the craft, it exploded high overhead, raining shrapnel on the airspeeder, which came about and shot for the source of the fire. Movement below, the pilot said, glancing at one of the scanner displays. I count six figures. Obi-Wan raised himself out of his seat. I don't see anyone. Mimetic suits, Qui-Gon said. He swung to the pilot. Find a place to set us down. 
Another rocket streaked into the sky, detonating between the second and third airspeeders. Targets are headed south, the pilot said. Qui-Gon let his eyes roam over the varied domes and hip roofs. Emerging from a narrow cleft between two domes, three humans came briefly into view, only to disappear against a background of roof tiles. The pilot steered the airspeeder for the top of a long barrel vault and let the craft settle down. Blaster bolts began to whiz past the fuselage and ricochet erratically from the vault's arched walls. Lightsabers ignited, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan leapt over the gunnels. Hitting the vault, they somersaulted through the air for the flat area below. Some distance behind, Adimundi, Verger, and the two judicials hit the roof running. In a blur of motion, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan bolted to the end of the flat roof, wound between several domes, and covered a length of sheer ledge without a moment's hesitation. Side by side, and with blaster bolts darting beneath them, they hopped across an interior courtyard and continued the chase without breaking stride. The terrorists were retreating deeper into the sinuous topography. Qui-Gon pursued a pair of fleetingly visible figures, ultimately bounding far ahead of them. With lightsaber raised, he waited for them to rush directly into his path. His green blade hissed and thrummed as it sliced through the air, deflecting a dozen blaster bolts along with a hurled blaster to top it off. Perceiving the direction of the pair's revised retreat, Qui-Gon dropped both of them with a forced push. The two judicials arrived in time to pounce on the terrorists before their mimetic suits had a chance to re-energize. Sensing something behind him, Qui-Gon whirled, but not quickly enough. A meter-long vibroblade secured to the fist of a nearly indiscernible assailant pierced the right side of his brown cloak, just missing his ribs. Qui-Gon spun through a full turn, slashing diagonally with his lightsaber and having the vibroblade. The terrorist scampered to the center of the roof, where the brick wall of a small dwelling afforded him better camouflage, and drew a blaster. Qui-Gon rushed forward, evading blaster bolts, then moving in to grapple hand-to-hand with a human of similar size. A hail of bolts tore past Qui-Gon's left ear as he threw his quarry to the roof. Two more bolts singed his long hair in their passing. He leapt to the right and rolled for cover. Drawing on the force, he coaxed a slate tile loose from the dwelling's peaked roof. The tile slipped from the grasp of its fasteners, shot spinning through space, and clipped the terrorist in the side of the head, felling him instantly. Qui-Gon glanced around for Obi-Wan and found him standing at the base of a large dome, atop a wall that enclosed a deep courtyard. Qui-Gon was headed toward him when he spied an indistinct shape sliding down the steep curve of the dome. The shape collided with Obi-Wan and sent him flailing over the edge of the building. Qui-Gon dashed forward, holding his lightsaber at hip level, then flicking the blade upward when he reached the spot where he predicted the terrorist would land. A faint cry rang out, and a right arm flashed into visibility and went sailing over the edge of the roof. Disabled, the mimetic suit phased out, revealing a howling human female down on her knees, her left hand gripped on what remained of her severed right arm. Qui-Gon rushed to the wall, hoping to find that Obi-Wan had found a soft spot to land. Instead, an airspeeder rose out of the courtyard, with Obi-Wan clinging by one hand to the craft's aft-starboard stabilizer. 
The airspeeder gently deposited Obi-Wan on the roof next to Qui-Gon. Nearby, Kiadimundi, Verger, the two judicials, and a couple of Variadu security officers were securing the six terrorists that had been captured. Neither Havoc nor Cole were among them. That was quite a stunt, Padawan, Qui-Gon said. I guess you would rather have found me dangling by my teeth, Master. Qui-Gon looked perplexed. The thought puzzle Master Anun Bondara put to his students on the day we spoke with Luminara, Obi-Wan explained. About the man dangling by his teeth from the strut of a skimmer over a treacherous pit. I remember now, Qui-Gon said with sudden interest. After much thought, I decided that the skimmer is meant to be the force, and that the pit represents the dangers that await any of us who stray from the path. And what of the lost travelers who asked for help? The travelers were merely distractions that the man should ignore if he is to remain in the force. Distractions, Qui-Gon murmured. He thought back to the attempt on Valorum's life, the events on Asmaru, and the evidence that had been discovered in the customs warehouse. Qui-Gon clapped Obi-Wan on both shoulders. You've helped me see something that has been eluding me. He glanced at the half-dozen terrorists. There's little more we can do here. Hurry now, Padawan. Havoc's scheme is afoot. Where are we going, Master? Where we were meant to go from the beginning.